Hallelujah. Amen. For the glory. For the glory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God is so good. God is so good. Oh, Lordy, Lordy, Lordy. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to James chapter 3 and hold that and then go to Hebrews chapter 1. Because we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 1, but we're going to end up in James chapter 3. So, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. All right. Two weeks ago, two weeks ago, we began a series. And Lynn, do you have that graphic, the oil of gladness graphic? Could you just throw that up there and just leave it there? It'll be good. Unless you want to throw scriptures up from time to time. But we began a series two weeks ago on the oil of gladness. The oil of gladness. And it really started, and I, I told you guys this, and I shared the testimony about my own experience with the spirit of depression being broken and about experiencing what I call the baptism of joy. And so that kind of launched me in to this whole consuming study on what I've now come to call the theology of gladness. Or, as my friend likes to call it, the ideology of gladness, the study of an idea. But it's really the study of an idea, but it's the study of God in that idea. So whether you call it ideology or theology of gladness, the point's the same. We're talking about a state of being. We're talking about a state of being. I know in our culture, we use gladness or being glad being happy or happiness being joyful or joy and sometimes even pleasure as synonymous don't we in our culture don't we use those things kind of interchangeably somebody will say oh man i was so thankful for that event it made me so happy i had so much joy you guys know what i'm talking about we use those as synonyms but can i tell you that according to scripture they're not synonymous at all. They're not. They're not synonymous. Each one means something different. And I kind of want to tell you what they are, but I'm going to leave you in suspense for just a minute. <laughs> I'm going to leave you in suspense for just a minute. I'm just kidding. I'm not that cruel. <laughs> so I want to get into a little bit of a categorical distinction. A little technical but I want you guys to understand what I'm talking about when I talk about the theology of gladness or the oil of gladness. And out throughout the course of this conversation, I'm going to use two phrases interchangeably because they mean the same thing. Whether I talk about being anointed with the oil of gladness and whether I talk about the baptism of joy, those are the same thing. The baptism of joy and anointing with the oil of gladness are the same thing. And here's why. How many of you guys know what happiness means? You think, but you now I told you that you don't, it doesn't mean what most people think it means. Think about the princess bride. I don't think that means what you think it means. Anyway, great movie. But happiness is an emotional reaction or response to an external circumstance. It's not controllable. It's something happens, somebody gives you $100, you're happy. Somebody takes $100, you're not happy. <laughs> it's a response to a circumstance and it's fleeting. You have no control over it. But there is something that you can do to dictate 
what things make you happy and what things don't make you happy. And that's what we mean when we talk about pleasure. Happiness is a spontaneous response to an external circumstance. Someone calls you pretty, you're happy. Someone says your feet stink, you're not happy. You see what I'm saying? External circumstance, happy, not happy. It's fleeting. It's here, it's gone. It's here, it's gone. Pleasure is not the same thing. Pleasure is a cultivation of what makes you happy. Let me explain. Faith and I, I had to go back through Facebook uh, the other day. And let me tell you, you take a journey through the years that you've been on Facebook, you're going to find some stuff like, wow, I said that. I wore that. I had that haircut. (laughs) You're going to find some things. You go back far enough. But I went all the way back to 2017, 2018, 2018, when Faith and I began this healthy eating journey. Now, granted, we've slipped off a time or two in that process. We haven't been faithful um, in that six-year period. But in 2018, we started this journey. And for the first two years, we didn't eat any sugar. If anything had more than three grams of sugar, we didn't eat it. If it had any added sugars, we didn't eat it. If anything had gluten, we didn't eat it. Everything was made from scratch. Everything was fresh. Every, I mean, and it was a journey. Go like that, 100% of the time, eventually you're going to have this crash and you're going to give it all up. And that's what happened to us. But one thing I realized when we started that journey was when I ate something that was gluten-free, it did not taste good. It tasted like styrofoam. It did. Try gluten-free bread and then try regular bread, regular bread, and tell me which one tastes better right off the cusp. Gluten-free, sugar-free stuff didn't taste good. You start pulling sugar out of stuff, you're going to realize why they put it in there in the first place. Sugar is good. (laughs) At least it tastes good. But what I began to realize was that when we were on that journey, six months in, a year in, when I went back and tried to eat an Oreo, all I could taste was chemical. All I could taste was processing. The preservatives. And it was like bitter, and it was like drinking Windex. It's like, that's what it reminded me of. It was not good. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, have you ever got too close to a window when you're cleaning it and that mist gets in your mouth? Or hairspray and it gets in your mouth? That's what it tasted like to me. And when I tasted clean food, it tasted good. What had happened was my taste buds had changed according to what I had been feeding them. They had grown and matured and developed and my flavor profile had transformed over the course of time. Now, that's what pleasure is. Pleasure is when you live a certain lifestyle or you do certain things, you begin to cultivate what makes you happy and what doesn't make you happy. I.e., you live in sin long enough, it takes sinful things to make you happy. You live godly long enough, it takes godly things to make you happy. Does that make sense? That's what, we, that's what pleasure is. It's a cultivation of what makes you happy. That's why the Bible says there is pleasure in sin for a season. Because in sin, you will cultivate things that bring you happiness, but it only lasts for a while. There is no eternal value to it whatsoever. Does that make sense? So happiness, external response, you have no control over it. Pleasure is cultivating what brings you happiness. Joy is in a whole different realm altogether. 
Joy is this tethering of desire. Joy is a desire for something. And people are like, wait a second, wait a second. What is that? How does that, how do you get rejoice? And joy is when you tether yourself to something and you experience euphoria in anticipation of that thing that you've tethered yourself to. For example, kids on Christmas. My kids were so ready for Christmas. Asher, we tell them the night before, we say, hey, you can get up at 5 a.m. You cannot get up at 4 a.m. You cannot get up at 3 a.m. You cannot get up till 5 a.m. We stay up all night putting the bunk beds together to surprise them and everything. I go to bed. I close my eyes at 3.30. At 5.01, I hear, it's Christmas! (laughs) Yes, it is! (laughs) Next year, it's going to be (laughs) 6.01. But... The point is, is that he had so much joy because he had tethered himself in anticipation for a moment. True joy is found in tethering yourself to God and you experience the euphoria as anticipation for an encounter or an experience or a conversation or a blessing from God. Does that make sense? That's joy. Joy isn't the realization of the thing. It's the desire for the thing. So when the Bible says rejoice, it's basically saying tether yourself back to it. Tether yourself back to it. Make it a commitment that this is your fixation, that this is your focus, that this is your desire. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 27, this one thing have I desired, and this one thing I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord and look upon His beauty forever. That's joy. And gladness is a state of being. Gladness is what we call someone that dwells in that place of joy. Someone that dwells in that place that is tethered that experiences. Now understand this, whether you have joy and gladness operating simultaneous in your life or not, you're still going to experience moments where you get sad. You're still going to experience moments where you get mad. You're still going to have things that come against you. But the reason Scripture can say stuff like no weapon formed against me shall prosper is because what happens, and this is what we teach our kids, whatever you feel, whatever hits you, whatever comes against you, you return to joy immediately. You don't dwell in the sadness. You don't dwell in the pain. You don't dwell in the agony. You don't dwell in the anger or the frustration. As soon as it hits, you process it and you fly right back to joy. It's like Speed Gonzalez on the old commercials where he would shoot in and he would do like an about face and then shoot back out. You shoot into this place of frustration, you do an about face and you shoot back out. That's or the little meme with a little baby that runs down the hallway and stops in the kitchen and then does a little thing and turns around and runs back out. That's what you do. You get to this place of, oh my goodness, I'm in pain, I'm in agony, I'm in frustration, I'm in sadness, I don't belong here. And you shoot back to that place of gladness and that place of joy. Does that make sense? So when we're talking about the oil of gladness from Hebrews 1.9, what we're talking about is we're talking about a baptism or an immersion into this state of gladness. A baptism into joy where we can abide perpetually in this state of gladness. Does that make sense? And you want to know the best part about this? This is something God wants for everybody. 
This isn't something God wants for the select few. God does not want you to moan through your Christianity. He does not want your Christian life to be miserable. He does not want you to wail. Listen, I've been to worship services and people singing, and sometimes it's people and they're trying to sing these old hymns and it sounds like they're at like a dirge singing for a funeral because everybody's sad and broken and miserable. That's not what God wants for you in this life. I don't picture Jesus walking around just all bummed out. Oh, this world is so terrible. Like That's not what God wants for Christians. For believers, we should be the most happy, the most joyous, and the most pleasure, pleasured, pleasure, the most people with the most pleasure, and we, <laughs> and we should be in a perpetual state of gladness. That's the problem with depression, is because what happens, true, true fact, if you dwell in any moment, in any emotion for six minutes, any emotion for six minutes, that emotion will be your default the rest of the day. Any emotion, anger, you're angry for six minutes, anger is your default reaction the rest of the day. You're sad, six minutes, sadness is your default emotion the rest of the day. That's psychology. That's emotional psychology. Whatever emotion you give the space of six minutes, that becomes your default emotion the rest of the day. What happens in depression is you wake up and your brain repeats the emotion from yesterday so you start off and your first six minutes is depressed and sad so it becomes your default for the rest of the day and then the next day is the same thing and the next day is the same thing and it's a perpetual slide further and further down because your brain repeats and amplifies the things that you have fed it all day long so if you're feeding it sadness on a scale of five out of ten the next day it'll be six out of ten and then it'll be seven out of ten and then it'll be eight out of ten and then it'll be nine out of ten and then it'll be ten out of ten and then it'll start going off the chart because it's repeating and amplifying the things that you've been giving it have you ever noticed you're mad you wake up frustrated and you're mad and then no matter what happens that day you're just in a bad mood everybody anybody had bad moods bad days bad weeks bad months bad years listen that's because you give that emotion the space of six minutes and that's all it needs there's a reason six ain't a good number. I'm just saying. You give it six minutes and it takes your day. Six minutes and it takes your day. And what's so hard is when you first wake up in the morning, you don't really have immediate control with the first thing that comes in. What you have to do is you have to be conscious and aware enough to change that before the six minutes hits. And you're like, well, now you're getting into like some psychological stuff. You're, what's a good word? I was going to say you're dang right I am, but that's not that's a little bit you're dang right I am. I am getting into psychological stuff because spiritual stuff should be prominent enough that it affects the psychological stuff that it affects the physical stuff. This Bible isn't just about abstract spiritual stuff. No, it affects your heart, your mind, your emotions, your will, your intellect, your imagination, your conscious thought, and it affects your physical body. It pervades over the whole thing. So I am talking about mind because your spirit has the ability to dictate the things in your mind and affect the way you live your life. So when I talk about my depression, that was what was happening to me. And that's what God came in and broke. And then He anointed me with the oil of gladness. And you can ask my wife or my kids, I have been different since that happened. 
I have been different since that happened because it wasn't just, oh, I'm going to have a good day now. Tomorrow I'll be back to sad. No, I realized what God was doing because he told me. And I then was able to take that and make that a perpetual state of gladness. Do I have moments where I get mad? Absolutely. Do I have moments where I get sad? Yes. But I return to joy as quickly as possible. And that's what God wants for you. He wants you to have a perpetual state of joy. And even if you get deviated from it, he wants to help you come back to it immediately and I think that uh, besides a revival and people actually reading the Bible and getting to know Jesus the number one need in the church today is people to get happy (laughs) I mean the church needs some happiness it needs some joy it needs some gladness in it because we look like a sad bunch of people we do and I (laughs) some of it's like it's just our resting facial expression I get that But some of us need some happiness. We get into conversations and we have a race to the bottom. We need some happiness and some life going on. And that's why I wanted to preach a message on the oil of gladness. And then God told me the night before the message that it was supposed to be a series. So praise God. It became a series. And last week when we started this off, Hebrews 1.9, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. I showed you guys that the second half of this verse, the second phrase that God has anointed you with the oil of gladness is a response to the prerequisite being accomplished in the first phrase. That the loving righteousness and hating iniquity was the condition for the anointing with the oil of gladness. You guys remember that? All prophetic promise and judgment, all prophetic words have an if or a because factor. They happen if you do something or they happen because you have already done something. If you humble yourself because you've left me, all prophecy operates that way. You guys, you guys believe that? Do a search through your Bible. All prophetic words that God ushers forth is if you do something or because you have done something. Now, people will say, and I met this objection last week, this is a messianic prophecy and it applies to the Messiah. And I said, yes, it does. But let me tell you something. Brace yourselves. This Bible was not written to you. Not a single word in the Bible was written to you or to me. It wasn't. But every single word was written for you and for me. Paul didn't write the letter to Ephesus thinking about Pastor C.A. He wrote the letter to the church at Ephesus. But the Holy Spirit knew that that letter written to the church at Ephesus was going to be for me. And it was going to be for you. The Bible wasn't written to you, but it was written for you. Just like this messianic prophecy wasn't written to you, but it was definitely written for you. Because we are supposed to be conformed to His image. We are supposed to follow the example He set forth. And it says specifically in Romans 8, that He that spared not His own Son, but freely delivered Him up, how shall He not also with Him freely give us all things? He wants us to be happy. He says this, Ask anything that you will in My name, believing, and I will give it to you, that your joy may be made full. He tells us this, He says, He will withhold from us no good thing. God wants us to have a joyful walk in this world. He wants us to. 
He wants us to celebrate and to be jubilant about our Christianity. Not to mourn it or moan it and say, well, I wish there was another way, but there's not, so I guess I'm going to follow Jesus. It's like, that's not what God wants. God wants us to have an amazing, vibrant, thriving relationship with Him. Can you imagine how faith would feel if I followed and followed the letter of the law according to marriage, but I was miserable the whole time? Think about that. In the natural context of marriage, if I never cheated, if I bought her obligatory flowers on Valentine's Day, a present on her birthday, I wished her a happy anniversary, I got her a Christmas present, I celebrated her on Mother's Day, but I was miserable the whole time. Knock on the front door. Hey, babe, I got you flowers because social convention says I have to. How well do you think that would go? How much do you think she would enjoy or be pleased with our relationship? She said it wouldn't be good for you. No, it wouldn't be. I know, I know. But in a natural circumstance, that wouldn't be a good relationship, would it? But that's the exact same thing we do in our relationship with God is we think that we can follow the law or the rules and have a miserable time and still be okay and pleasing to God. No. God wants you to have joy and have joy and life and life more abundantly. That's what He wants for you. That's His desire for you. But you have to take the steps to have it. I hate to say it, we're getting practical. There are things that you have to do. And before you get freaked out, I addressed the very first one last week about righteousness because that's the one that freaks everybody out is a moral code of conduct and rules. And I told you that that righteousness is not what we have taught that that righteousness is in the church. People have repainted the legalistic law and said you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you can't do that, you've got to do this, you can't do that. And they say that doing righteous things makes you righteous. Eh, false. No. I think about the Jeopardy X. Eh, or the Family Feud X. Eh, no. You are not made righteous because you do righteous things. Sinners are not sinners because they sin. Sinners sin because they're sinners. It's from the inside out. You are not made righteous because you do righteous things. The Holy Spirit makes you righteous after you believe in Jesus, and then out of that transformed heart, you then do righteous things. It is not from the outside in. Jesus says Himself, it's not what comes into a man that defiles him, but it's what goes out. It's what from the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. It's from the inside out. The Holy Spirit induces a transformation, changes your heart, and then it changes the way you live your life. So it's not about doing a whole bunch of right things to get the anointing with the oil of gladness. No, it's about believing you are who God says you are. If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that for the heart man believes un to righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You believe, you confess, you're saved. Then you continue to believe. Paul deals with that concept in Galatians chapter 3. You don't begin by faith and then maintain your salvation by works. You begin by faith and you maintain your righteousness and your salvation by the same faith that you used to become a Christian in the first place. It's faith, faith, faith. You believe and you receive. People will oftentimes preach that passage from Matthew chapter 11. And you guys know, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth the violent and the violent take it by force. You know what I'm talking about? 
Man, I've heard some fiery messages preached off of that passage. You've got to get aggressive with Satan and take back what's yours. You guys ever heard messages like that? That's awesome, and I love them, but they're a complete misinterpretation of that passage. They're a complete misinterpretation because he says from the days of John the Baptist, which is the days of the prophets, until now. Meaning until now. Now there's a transformation. There's a distinction. There's an epoch. There's a turning point. From the days of John the Baptist and the prophets, the kingdom of heaven suffered the violent and the violent had to take it by force because they couldn't get it any other way. But now in Christ Jesus, the victorious receive it by faith. Hallelujah. We don't have to take it by force. We just got to say, I believe and I receive. And through Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will appropriate that work to us and give us all good things we don't have to take it by force anymore we just have to believe and receive in jesus name that is what i mean when i talk about the righteousness which is by faith now we're going to take a step back we're going to take a step back (laughs) you guys like taking a step back like the michael jackson the moonwalk i can't moonwalk but (laughs) anyway taking a step back back it on up anyway (laughs) Before it says the word righteousness, it says something else. It says, thou hast loved. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Love. And I told you guys, normally if you just start at the beginning and work through, you'd deal with love before you got to righteousness. But I felt it imperative to talk about the object of the thing being loved and use that to help explain The concept of love. Now, I've taught on love before. How many of you guys remember? How many types of love are there in the Bible? Four. Four. There's four types of love in the Bible. There's storge, which is like a regular basic affection or materialistic affection. There is phileia or phileo, which is a brotherly or friendship or familial affection or love. There's eros, which is a romantic. It's where we get the word erotic. It's a romantic love. And then there's agape, which is a godly love. That is the tier of affection or love. What you guys need to understand is every single decision you make in life is dictated by whatever affection has predominance in your heart. Whatever affection is the strongest in your heart is what dictates your decisions. Don't believe me? I'll give you a couple examples. If materialism or materialistic affection, i.e. money, career, house, homestead, job, I said that already, I don't know, reputation, social media following, If that is your greatest affection, you will do anything in your power to increase that. There are people that would sell their soul if they thought it would give them more money. Or if they thought it would make them more popular or more famous. They would rat out house and home. Think about this. Those people that have strong enough addictions will rob their own mother to support their addiction. Because... Their affection, their storge, their affection for that material thing is greater than their familial affection for their mother. The same thing is true with family. If you have a family affection or a brotherly affection or a friendship love for someone and it's greater than everything else, you will lie, you will cheat, you will do whatever it takes to protect that person in your family, won't you? 
What about eros or romantic love? Listen, when Faith and I first started dating, eros can be defiled, but it doesn't what it, it's not what it means in its basic state. We defile it when use erotic and erotica. I won't get into that. You guys know what that means. But in its basic sense, it's romantic love. When Faith and I first started dating, it didn't matter what plans I had. If she had free time and she wanted to hang out, everything else and everyone else got pushed to the side. Yeah, I'll take time off work. I don't know if I've got any time. How many points do I have left before I get fired? Like, yeah, I, I'm serious. Like that, it's two o'clock in the morning. I, well, yeah, let's, let's talk. Um, you can't fall asleep? Fine. I'll quote scripture for a little while until you fall asleep. <laughs> It's 2 o'clock in the morning. I just got off of graveyard shift. Or 6 o'clock in the morning. I just got off graveyard shift. But you're getting up. Sure, I'll talk to you for a little while before I go to sleep. Oh, we got church? I guess I'm not sleeping because I'm going to talk to you and then go to church. But hey, hallelujah. You, You see what I'm saying? You will push everything out in order to appease whatever affection is running most dominant in your heart. The same is true with agape. If God is your most dominant affection, it will dictate your life and your choices. And so when you think about Jesus, the word for love here is agape. It's godly love. And His love for the righteousness which is by faith, His love for things of the Spirit, and His relationship with the Father was the most predominant thing in his life. It dictated all of his choices. I don't say anything unless my father says it first. I don't do anything unless I see my father do it. I will ask of my father in heaven. Everything Jesus, look through the gospels. Everything Jesus does, he is said, he references it back at some point to his father. Everything. Because that is his greatest affection and it dictates his life. And so there's one lesson to be learned here. It's not the main topic for today, but there's one lesson to be learned here. Is that if your greatest affection is anything other than God, you will jip God. If you love money more than God, you will rob God to keep your money. If you love people more than God, you will slight God to appease people. If you love reputation more than God, you will slight God to maintain reputation. That's why God says, He that does not hate mother and brother and sister and father is not worthy of me. It's not that He just wants you to hate them. It's that He wants the predominant seat of your affections because He knows if it doesn't have the predominant seat of your affections, you really don't have the love of God. There really is no other way around it. That's why people in Christianity will be going along, ministers or whatever, and they look like they're so great and they have such a great knowledge of the Bible and they preach a great word and everybody's like, wow, they've got a great ministry. And then all of a sudden they're having one affair after another or one thing comes to a light and it turns around that they've been cheating on their spouse for 40 years. I'm using real examples or they've been opening, you know, massage parlors so that they can engage in all kinds of illicit activities and off the radar, and then they tell people, I know that this is technically wrong, but God has made an allowance for me because He knows what I have to suffer. That's a real word out of a minister's mouth. No, He hasn't. But what has happened is their storge or materialistic affection or their eros or erotic affection or love has become so strong that it's pushed their affection for God right out the window. That's why Solomon fell because of all his foreign wives. That's why David messed up with Bathsheba. A giant couldn't kill David, but a woman taking a bath could. 
Because David wasn't a coward, but he had a love problem. That's what happens in church. When you see someone go along and you're like, wow, they seem like a great Christian on the outside, but they don't have their love and order on the inside. God has to be all in all. And it's not because He's selfish. It's because if God is the top affection, your love for God will filter out and benefit all of your other relationships and activities. But if God is less than the top, or less than all, not only will you end up sliding God, but you'll end up sliding one family member in favor of another. You'll end up sliding your job in favor of money, or you'll slight your reputation in favor of popularity. In a sense. Does all that make sense? Getting your love in order, because love dictates the way you live your life. But love dictates another thing too. James chapter 3. Let's read a little bit of Scripture. Love dictates your language. Your language. James chapter 3, verse 1. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall all receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and also able to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet they are turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold... How great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue no man can tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth the fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either of vine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Hallelujah. So I want to I want to give a little bit of a a, a disclaimer here. The entire book of James, and I've said this before, the entire book of James is fixated on one topic, and it's the heart. It's interesting, though, because James only ever uses the word heart twice in the whole epistle. It's kind of like Esther. The whole book of Esther is fixated on God, but Esther never, ever uses the word God. So James is fixated on the heart, and this passage, the main intent of this passage is to show how that which is in the heart will flow out of the mouth. Now, let's do a little bit of groundwork. In the very first verse, he says, be not many masters, meaning don't be many teachers. Don't rush into being a teacher because we shall receive the greater condemnation. The greater condemnation. That word condemnation is judgment. Don't be many teachers because we shall receive the greater judgment. Go to the next verse. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man able to bridle the whole body. What James does here is he takes an example being a teacher, and then he begins to illustrate that. What does a teacher do? Teaches. Wow. <laughs> Woo! We got it. A teacher teaches. Kind of like what I'm doing right now. I'm teaching, right? What am I using to teach? Words. 
It's almost impossible to not teach without some form of communication. Take your mouth out of it, teaching becomes very difficult. There are ways, sign language and other things, where you can teach without your mouth, but even then you communicate with non-verbal communication. Teaching is about communication. It's a form of language. It's an expression of language, whether that's verbal, audible, or non-verbal, non-audible. Teaching is a transference of through language to communicate with someone, to convey information. And what James begins this saying is, don't rush into this because we have a greater judgment looming over us. Now, I know everybody's mind goes straight to God judging us. And that's absolutely true. Because people don't like to talk about it, but believers will be judged for every word, for every dime, for every action, for every inaction. Believers will be judged. 1 Corinthians 3 makes this clear. 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 10, Paul says that he is an apostle, and he goes on to say, other foundation hath no man laid than that which is... Yeah, then that which is laid, let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. And then he continues on to talk about the judgment which we will see by fire. If a man build up with wood, hay, stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stones, the day shall declare what sort of work it is because it shall be tried by fire. And if it remains, he receives reward. If it's consumed, he himself is saved, but his work is consumed. What we have to understand is Christianity does have a reward system. I don't think that it really matches up with the way that we would reward things. But there is a reward system. And what James is saying is be careful. Be careful. Because there's going to be a judgment on what you do and how you minister and how you communicate. And it's interesting that he uses this and then proceeds forth into a conversation about language. Because if you take the idea of condemnation, we've got some people that have worked in construction. In construction, what does a condemned building mean? It means something that's unlivable, unfit for life, unfit to be inhabited. When we teach, but we teach incorrectly, or our language flows from a place other than agape love, we set ourselves up and oftentimes pronounce ourselves as being unlivable or uninhabitable. Meaning, we're supposed to be a habitation of God through the Spirit. But with the same judgment we render, that judgment will also be rendered back unto us. With the same measure we mete out, the same measure will be measured against us. And so what happens is people will hurry up and become teachers, but they don't fully understand the grace of God, and they don't fully understand the new covenant and how to rightly divide the word of truth. So they set up this harsh system. You hear people up from behind the pulpit, and they slander, and they attack, and they cut down, and they take their Bible like a sword, and they just stab, and they slash. And before you know it, no one left standing everyone's going to hell everyone's guilty and they do that and they tear people down and what they don't realize is in doing that they have just set an impossible standard against themselves and so in cutting someone that's a double-edged sword they just cut themselves in their communication they have rendered out judgment that they don't even qualify for I've, I've seen a lot of ministers stand up behind pulpit and adultery is a big one for whatever reason with ministers. It's huge. 
But they'll stand up and they'll condemn everyone that ever has any indiscretion or any transgression in that department while they're simultaneously doing it themselves. And they don't realize that they have, judging others, they have passed judgment over their own selves as well. Because their love, their affection for their reputation and not for God is what's dictating their language. You guys see that? You guys see that? And that's why James immediately follows it up. He says, in many things we all offend. We offend all. Meaning nobody's perfect. Romans 3.23, all miss the mark. All fall short of the glory of God. Everybody, that's what sin means, to miss the mark. That's why I read that in there. We all have sinned. We all miss the mark. We all fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Everybody fails in of their own strength. James says that. But then he immediately ties it back. If any man offends not in word, the same as a perfect man able to bridle the whole body. And then he compares it and he gives two examples. The bit in the horse's mouth. You put a bit in a horse's mouth, you move the bit, the horse moves with it. You turn the horse's head, its body goes with it. Because it doesn't want its head to run off without its body. Neither do I. <laughs> okay? The ship, cruise ships, they are huge. But they're turned about with a very small helm. It's a minuscule fraction of the size of the ship itself. That's what the tongue does. And that's why he proceeds forth into this conversation of nobody can tame it. It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. And it's set on fire of hell. Do you know why he says that? Because, and if you follow his line of logic through to the end, the fountain is full of evil. The fountain is set on fire of hell. The fountain is full of deadly poison. The fountain is messed up. Because let me tell you something about the tongue. The tongue is nothing more than a thermometer of the heart. It is nothing more than a reflection of the heart. That's why nobody can tame the tongue. Because the tongue is not operating independently of the heart. It's merely reflecting what is in the heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? The tongue does nothing more than just reflect what is in the heart. So you can't tame the tongue if you've got an untamed heart. If your heart's unrighteous, your tongue's unrighteous. If your heart's set on fire of hell, your tongue's set on fire of hell. If your heart's full of poison, your tongue's full of poison. Make sense? And then he goes into this, and I love this. He says, out of the same mouth, we bless God and we curse men which are made out of the similitude of... And he says, this thing ought not to be. Here's what happens. When you think of cursing, how many of you, when you hear the word curse, you think about the little witch over the cauldron? Just me? I do. Anyway, I picture like the little witch with the pointed hat on Halloween over the little cauldron with something green and bubbling in it, and long fingers with like the warts on it, and the ugly fingernails. That's what I picture. The wiry hair. Anyway, I, I, whatever, whatever. Okay? <laughs> I hear the word curse and that's where my mind goes. Or like, like a witch casting a spell or like someone with like runes or like a, you know, an anagram like trying to, you know, um, put a spell on somebody, you know, I cast a spell on you. Anyway, that's what my mind goes when I think of curse. But it's interesting because that's not the way the Bible describes curse. Especially here in James, he uses the word curse in contrast with the word bless. And how many of you know what the word bless means? The word bless is the Greek word eulogia. Kind of like lugi, you know, like lugi. No, it's the word eulogia which is where we get our word eulogy. 
And a eulogy is what's spoken at a funeral. Remember I've said more lies are told about funerals than anywhere else. Because a eulogy is a good word spoken over someone. It's a good word. And so some people ain't never done anything in their life to have a good word spoken, so somebody gets up and makes it up. <laughs> Y'all must have not been to a secular person's funeral. Listen, I got some family members that were mean like copperhead, rattlesnake, mean, and somebody gets up and paints them like they were a saint. And I'm like, they ain't never darkened the doorstep of a church, much less been what you've exclaimed or described them as being. That's why more lies are told at funerals than anywhere else, because nobody wants to get there and say something bad over somebody that just died, even if it is the truth. <laughs> if that's the case, just play some songs and say, oh, I miss them, and go on with your life. <laughs> anyway, that's bad. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Anyway, Lord, <laughs> but that's, that's what it means to bless. So when David says, bless the Lord, O my soul, bless the, all, with all that is within me, bless His holy name, it's speak good over God. Speak good to God. And because God is good, every good word can be attributed to Him and from Him and through Him and for Him. So David is saying, speak good things to God. So if we take curse in contrast with that, it's speak bad things. Out of the same mouth, bless we God and then curse we men. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. When it all is an overflow of the heart, how is that possible? And that's what James is saying is it's not. It's impossible to bless God and to curse men. You know why people can do that? And before you say, I've never cursed anybody in my life, let me, let me take a step back. You've never cursed anybody in your life. Every person in this room has put a curse on somebody. The Bible tells us, Proverbs 18, 21, Death and life is in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. You have power in your mouth. Now, I'm not getting off on some wacky... I know there's some people out here that will teach this, and they'll teach some wacky theology, but let me tell you something. When God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth, what did He do? He formed him out of the dust of the earth, and He laid there. He breathed the breath of life into him. Guess what? That same breath of life that woke up Adam still dwells in the heart of every single person alive. And so when you speak, what do you do? When you speak, you are breathing out. The same air that God breathed into you, you breathe out. You are giving life to something. Don't believe me? Abraham was Abram until God breathed into him and then he became Abraham. And then, at that point in time, he was able to hope against hope in the one that spoke that which is not as though it already was, Romans 4. It was the breath of life in him that gave him the ability to speak that which is not as though it already was in accordance with what God had spoken in him. Does that make sense? Death and life are in the power of the tongue. When you speak, you are giving license and power to things to operate in your life and in the life of other people. And so when teachers are dishing out condemnation, they're dishing out over themselves and their congregations. How many times have you said this? They're never going to amount to anything. They're never going to change. They're never going to grow past that. They're never going to have anything. They don't know how to do finances. They're never going to have a dime to their name. They've been addicted 10 plus years. They're never going to get off of that. They've been sick. They're never going to be healed. I'm never going to be healed. Come on. I'm just going to have to live with this. I'm just going to have to operate according to this. 
I just can't understand Scripture. My mind is fading. I can't remember names like I used to. Come on. I used to be able to do this, but my hands just don't work the same way they used to. How many of you guys speak deaf? And you, it comes out so quick. Now, I want to reiterate something that even Perry said last week. A lot of ministers' problems is they tell you to just fake it till you make it and speak against reality. I'm not telling you to deny reality. I'm not telling you. You get a doctor's report that's unfavorable. I'm not telling you to deny that report. But I am telling you that you can come against that report and say there's another report that was written. And who has believed our report, Isaiah 53? I believe the report of the Lord. The doctor says this, and it's true. It's active in my body. But I believe the report of the Lord. But who His stripes, I can be healed. I am healed right now. They may be addicted, and they may have been addicted for 10 years, and it may look like they'll never get out of it. But my Lord can break every chain. He can shine a light in the darkness and pull them out. He can pull them out of the miry clay and set their feet on solid ground you begin to speak life against that darkness but you don't give your faith to the death you see what i'm saying you don't give your breath to something that's dead and give it life to continue to be dead (laughs) does that make sense i know that's a little play on words but you don't breathe to something that is continually operating the spirit of death over someone and continue to give it breath to operate in that spirit of death for a longer period of time but that's what we do so often and you know why from the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks it's because we don't have faith in our heart that god will really move in that situation so we continue to speak death because we don't believe that god will do it we continue to say things like We're always going to be like this. We're always going to struggle financially. The world is shot. It's it's going to hell in a handbasket. Our economy is terrible. America's getting ready to fall. Our government's never going to get it right. Come on. I even agree with those assessments. But here's the differentiation. Agreeing with those assessments... And, and then applying an understanding of the possibility and potentiality for the miraculous, that's what differentiates someone that's going to speak life instead of death. That's what differentiates them. See, I've told you guys this before. What you see is not natural. It's not reality. It's subnatural. It's sub-reality. It's less than. It's a fallen state. The things that you can't see is what's actual reality or what's actually natural. There is no supernatural. There's natural and subnatural. And everything that we call supernatural is actually just the original way that God intended for it to be. And so what you're doing is saying, I see the report of subreality. I see the report of subnatural. I see the circumstances, but they're not the reality that I'm going to agree with. I'm going to agree with that reality which is beyond this, which is above this, and I'm going to speak in accordance with that. I won't deny what's right in front of me, but I will speak according to what I know is there even though I can't see it. So instead of letting it be death and life and the power of the tongue and they that eat it, love it shall eat the fruit thereof, why don't you do this? Why don't you say Christ died on the cross? He died for my sins. He died for my sicknesses. He died for my justification. He died for my prosperity. He died for my deliverance. And so I'm going to speak that death. And then He rose from the dead and invited me into an eternal relationship with Him so I could have intimacy with the God the Father through Him. And I'm going to speak that life. So I'm going to speak the death of Christ and I'm going to speak the life of Christ and I'm going to love it and eat the fruit of that. That's what I believe. That's what we can do. And we can do it when God transforms our heart enough to initiate us into that realm. Love dictates your language. 
Love dictates your life, but it dictates your language. I'm not asking you to deny what you see. I'm asking you to acknowledge it and then to speak beyond that. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's see. Do I got anything more that I want to say about this or is that a good place to stop? Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hey, hey, hallelujah, hallelujah. You know what? I want you guys, I, 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 this is a challenge. This is a challenge for the year 2024, for the rest of your life going forward. I want you to set a watch over your lips. I want you to set a lot watch over your lips. Make a covenant with your mouth before God. And don't allow yourself, hey, <laughs> set a watch over your, he got a wrist watch and put it over his mouth back there. Set a watch according to you. Make a covenant with your mouth before God. Hallelujah. And don't let cursing come out of it. Don't walk into church blessing and singing praises about God. And then as soon as it's done, say, can you believe what she wore? She trashy? I'm serious. I've heard this in church. I have literally heard them come and sing praises to God and pray. I've seen them wash people's feet and then get up and say, man, I can't believe that she wore that and was in the choir. And I've seen them call them hoes and everything else and they just got done singing about God. And then they walk out and they say, man, that preacher couldn't preach his way out of a wet paper bag. I've said that. I've said that. I've been in church and walked out and been like, man, that preacher couldn't preach himself out of a wet paper bag if he's life dependent on it. And then I'm like, man, that was rude. <laughs> but you guys know what I'm talking about. Man, I can't believe they're letting her lead worship. She couldn't carry a tune in a bucket with a lid nailed on. <laughs> it's like, what is going on in this place? <laughs> what is the other one? I'm more confused than a mosquito sucking on a mannequin. Like, <laughs> Look. Look, (laughs) but we do that. We sing about God. We lift God up and exalt Him and say, Oh, blessed Father, the great and almighty, worthy are You, hallowed is Your name. And then we turn around and we trash talk people and tear them down. And we get reports on the phone and we're like, I don't know, I know that that's, that's rough. I'm so sorry to hear that. Hang up the phone and like, I told them it was going to be this way. There ain't no hope. It's like, really? What's speaking there? Flesh or faith? Flesh or faith? Because we're supposed to let our faith dictate our experience, not our experience dictate our faith. And we do the exact opposite constantly. So here's the challenge. If you catch yourself saying a negative thing, a curse about a situation or about somebody, yourself included, rebuke yourself and speak Scripture to it. If you say, man, I just, I don't know why, I just can't remember like I used to. Say, I rebuke you, C.A. I rebuke you. I have the mind of Christ. I can remember because He has given me the ability to do that. 
Say, my body is just getting old and feeble. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. Though I perish, I am renewed day by day. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells within me, and He shall also with that Spirit quicken my mortal body. Begin to speak Scripture and life over yourself. And if you don't know a Scripture for that situation, rebuke yourself, pull out your phone and Google a Scripture, and then speak it over yourself. Amen? Let's speak life in this year. The life of Christ. And if we do speak death, let it only be the death of Christ. And let's get away from speaking cursing. So you see an empty seat in this church, you say, I speak that seat filled. You see and you're afraid about the finances of the church, don't let, God doesn't give us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And so you speak, nope, our bank account's fine, we're blessed. We're the head, not the tail, above and not beneath, an overcomer, not an undergoer. We're victorious, not violent. <laughs> Amen? Amen. Set a watch over your mouth. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, please take this word and cause it to prosper in the hearts and the minds of every single person here, Lord. And I pray that you help us, that you empower us to be a people of such radical faith that we speak that which is not as though it already was, that we hope against hope and speak against the lack of faith that we, like Paul say, we have believed, therefore we have spoken, and we let our word go forth triumphantly, then it matches yours and it doesn't fall to the ground. I think about Samuel and it says of him that no word he spoke fell idle or fell to the ground but every word was accomplished and that's just matching Isaiah 55 where it says every word you speak forth does not return void but it accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent and Lord I'm praying that over this congregation that we learn to speak life and that our words are accomplished. Lord, I believe the reason that you have not given that to us, that ability for our words to not fall idle, is because we can't get the cursing out of our mouth. And we, if we, you empowered every word and caused it to be accomplished, we'd be in dire straits because we speak so much death. Lord, I rebuke that off of us in the name of Jesus. I say Faith Memorial is well and healed. There's not sick one sick or feeble among our tribe. There's not one that speaks cursing, but everyone speaks blessing, and everyone walks in life and prosperity and health and happiness in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. You guys are dismissed.